Welcome to A Cinematic Journey, where we explore the themes, scenes, and elements of the movies we love. I am Peter Billingsley. My name is Nick Shank. Today's movie was considered a flop when it first came out and really only found an audience some 25 years later. This was a movie that shot winter for summer with some actors passing out in 90-degree weather. Uh, it won its only Oscar for technical achievement. And it's based on a self-published short story. And also this film was investigated by the FBI as potential communist propaganda. This was the lead actor's first movie after serving in combat in World War II. And of course, the movie we're talking about is... It's a Wonderful Life. It is a Wonderful Life. What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Hey, that's a pretty good idea. I'll give you the moon, Mary. I'll take it. Then what? Well, then you could swallow it, and it'd all dissolve, see? And the moonbeams would shoot out of your fingers and your toes and the ends of your hair. So this movie opens on hearing voices of, of prayers. People are praying for George Bailey. Yes, George Bailey, who we quickly learn is a, is a son, is a father, is a friend. And we also see heaven, and we hear the voices of some angels. And it's kind of cool because the angels are stars. Right. So instead of seeing people or faces, we're seeing these stars talk to each other. And what we learn quickly is that this man seems to be on the precipice of making a really bad decision. Right. Giving up God's greatest gift, which is his own life, his own life. And an angel's being called into action to hopefully save this life. So this is kind of a, a second class angel. And so they're sending in the <laughs> B squad. Well, uh, yeah. This angel has. Been trying to, I guess, sort of get his own wings for 200 years. 200 years. And so they say he's, he's probably not the best angel. He's got the um, IQ of a rabbit, but the, uh, the, the, the will of a child. And then we start to meet this George Bailey. So the movie goes back in the flashback and we meet him as a kid and he's a dreamer. Then even as a kid, he's a good guy. There, there's a great scene where they're, they're sledding on shovels. Yep. Cause I guess they can't afford sleds. So right. they're, they're on the river and they, they've, Blocked out the part where the water's open. We used to do this in Minnesota all the time. His brother, Harry, goes in the water and George Bailey pulls him out. Pulls him out, doesn't even hesitate. He also uh, gets an infection in his ear, so he's he's deaf in one ear. Right. So it winds up affecting his life, but he saves his brother. Mary is his love interest. We see them through high school and then they reconnect at a dance. And right. we feel there's this really powerful connection and love. He's also saying, I have plans. I have to travel. I have to leave. I have things that I want to do. And they don't include being married to Mary in this small town. He wants to make his first million dollars by age 30. Yeah, uh, he wants he, to build things, big things, skyscrapers. He has ambitions, lofty ambitions. And we also learn that his father runs a local savings and loan that seems to not put profits ahead of people. His dad is certainly not ever made a lot of money as a result of this business, but it seems to help a lot of people be able to navigate a banking system. And at the same time, there is another banker, Mr. Potter, who is definitely profits over humanity at all costs. Yeah, Mr. Potter, of course, has a monopoly on this town, and this is the only thing he can't get his hands on. So he's told his dad he doesn't have an interest in running this bank, and then George Bailey's father dies. Right. And suddenly this is now Potter's opportunity to take over this little savings and loan. And that leads us to this moment where George is ready to go off to college. In fact, he has his suitcase packed, his train's waiting, and he's going to go, and he just stops by the bank to give his final words. Right. He's got the, they all have the funeral ban on their arms. They're fresh from this funeral. That's right. This is his last chance out. He's ready to go. 
And he stops by the bank to just make his final comments. And let's take a look. You know how long it takes a working man to save $5,000? Just remember this, Mr. Potter, that this rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. People were human beings to him, but to you, a warped, frustrated old man, they're cattle. Well, in my book, he died a much richer man than you'll ever be. I'm not interested in your book. I'm talking about the building and loan. I know very well what you're talking about. You're talking about something you can't get your fingers on, and it's galling you. That's what you're talking about, I know. Well, I, I, I've said too much. I, you're, the, you're the board here. You do what you want with this thing. There's just one thing more, though. This town needs this measly one-horse institution, if only to have some place where people can come without crawling to Potter. George. George, they voted Potter down. They want to keep it going. Oh, you did it, George. You did it. They got one condition. Only one condition. What's that? And that's the best part of it. They've appointed George here as executive secretary to take his father's place. Oh, no, but Uncle Billy is... You can keep him on. That's all right. As secretary, you can hire anyone you like. Well, Dr. Cameron, let's get this thing straight. I'm leaving. I'm leaving right now. I'm going to school. This is my last chance. Uncle Billy here, he's your man. But, George, they'll vote with Potter otherwise. I know, I know. He didn't go. That's right. The town, you can see the peril if Potter gets this. The sense is the town might die. And his fear was becoming his father in a way. And now he's in his father's chair. And in typical George Bailey fashion, which the angels tell us, he stays. So he he accepts it. And there you go. That's really the central question that this movie is now going to explore is – you know, will George put the needs of others and the town in front of his own needs? Is he going to become successful versus being a shepherd of this town? All in. This was based on a short story. Yes, correct. It was a short story that somebody wrote and could not get published, couldn't find a publisher to publish it. Right, so, so did something super creative, which, you know, take note if you're a, if you're a right. fledging writer, right. Like I always say, Hollywood is hustle. Yep. You know, it's like you got to figure it out. Well, no one will publish my book. Well, then do something creative about it. You just got to break in. There's no real path or plan. Yeah, break in. You just got to, I don't know if you got to crawl over someone's gate or whatever it is. But um, this was a short story called The Greatest Gift by Philip Van Doren Stern. Uh, Stern was a guy who was in the U.S. service. He would abbreviate books for servicemen in the field. So you get these smaller books that could fit like in your Like the pocket. Cliff Notes, which is what I mostly read in school. Like the Cliff Notes. <laughs> and it's sort of like the smaller Bibles that were abbreviated right. that you'd put in your pocket in World War II. And so he came up with this idea. He couldn't get it published. So he was used, to, he knew some of these publishers from the war. He knew this process of, you know, putting this together. And so he t- turned this 21 page booklet into, he made 50 copies he could afford to do and sent them out to friends for Christmas presents, including a few people in Hollywood. And so he wasn't just scattering yeah, around like Johnny That's Appleseed. Right. He put it in a few, <laughs> few people's uh, right place, and it was uh, ended up at RKO Pictures. Yeah, so they got it. They liked it. They thought it could be something. They paid, I think, $10,000, which was a pretty good amount of money for the time. So right. his little Christmas card trick worked. And then it landed into Capra's hand. That's right. And I think wanted to do something with a sense of optimism. He had thematically had a career. He said that his greatest theme was – the individual. And that's really what he liked. And so he saw this short story and said, this is great. And RKO said, oh, great. Well, we have it. And um, in fact, we've gotten three A-list writers to do three different scripts on it. 
so you can take a look. And Capra didn't feel that any of the versions of the script captured the essence of the story that he liked. And so he takes it over himself and says, I'm going to write this. This is also happening at a time in his life where he feels as though as a director in Hollywood, he's beginning to feel like an employee. Right. You're um, locked into deals for, you know, years or a decade. Yes, the studio system as well. That's right. You're truly on an employee contract. You're not even on an independent contract contract. He was an RKO guy and he was in that faction. Right. And so you had to, if you were on the hook for five movies, you were on the hook for five movies. It comes down from Mount Olympus, right? right or MGM that you will do this. You will be happy. You will shut up and you will make this movie with these pages and we will edit it and put it out. And that's that. And so I think for a storyteller like Capra, it was, it was unsatisfying. Yeah. Strangling. Strangling. Good idea. Yes. It was In between ex- those two. So he begins to do something that has been tried a lot in Hollywood mm-hmm. since, but he tries to sort of break away from the studio system, get partners, raise money and start something called Liberty Films. Right. No uh, coincidence in the title. I don't think the liberty meaning literally free of the studio system and probably free to create. And they were going to, to, in essence, try to compete with the studios to be sort of an independent studio with enough leverage and money to kind of be in the game with these others. Which studios love. Oh, anyone loves competition. Especially (laughs) from a bunch of guys. And a new kid on the block, a bunch of guys that work for you that seem to think they, quote, know it better. Um, and he's able to get the story out of there and he's able to create a situation where Liberty Films is now going to be the company that makes this movie. And they have a lot riding on it. Um, because when you start a company and it's your first film and you're putting a lot of money into it, uh, you know, you don't have the reputation, you don't have movies behind it, you don't have movies ahead of it that are guaranteed right, you might with have the bankroll of a studio. Bankroll, you might have used, you might have used up favors, you know. Yeah, and you're probably relying on the box office receipts to kind of get you to the next one. You're sort of going product by product at this point. Right. Um, but there's lofty ambitions, they feel they can do it. And so kind of the next step that they need is a lead, is a lead actor. In the wise words of Clarence the Angel, remember, no man is a failure who has friends. And so why not celebrate those friends with the gathering of a lifetime? Where would you get everything you need for a gathering of a lifetime? For a great gathering of a lifetime, just like the end of It's a Wonderful Life, I would probably go to Walmart. So you need food. Mm-hmm. You need decorations. That's right. You need music. Yep. Maybe you need some, some cutlery, right? Some stuff. You can spruce that up a little bit. And so Walmart. Drinks. Drinks, walmart.com, or you go to a brick-and-mortar store, pick up your stuff. Yeah, for the gathering of a lifetime. And don't forget, even the smallest gesture goes a long way and can actually change the world. So sometimes even a gift, you want to spend a lot of money on a gift? I get it. You've got a lot of friends and family in your life. That's not true. But nevertheless, you can get something <laughs> affordable from from um, even your peripheral gifts to the richest man in town. That's right. You can get them all done at Walmart. Thousands of gifts and amazing savings at walmart.com. An angel gets his wings. Jimmy Stewart uh, served in the uh, Army Air Force. He had a calling to go into the war and um, instead of just to pay lip service. Uh, and he said years later, it may sound corny, but what's wrong with wanting to fight for your country? Um, so Jimmy Stewart enlisted 
and he insisted on serving in uh, combat. He they wanted him to just be a trainer. He was a of pilot, right. um, but he said no. I'm going. He's a major major Hollywood star. Major Hollywood time. star. They do not want him to. And he's enlisting. He's not drafted. He's volunteering and saying I'm going. And so he goes in, insists he's not going to hide behind a celebrity. He is going to go and fight. And so they wanted him to train pilots. Instead, he wanted to go on bombing missions. And which he did. He had flown before, right? He had had some experience. He had some experience private flying. in the private sector flying planes. Absolutely. And so then when he got into the service, he did his $400 behind a B-24, which is the worst aircraft to fly during the war. And so when he got in this thing, he was the oldest guy. I mean, he was 32 where his com- commanders were 21 and 22. He had aircraft, you know, cause they would shift from aircraft to qu- aircraft quite often. So you'd have guys that are 17 and 18 in there. And so right. at 32, you are the, you are the old man. And, but and he he's said, flying bombing missions, bombing missions over Germany. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, treat me like everybody else. And he, and Jimmy Stewart said, we all look the same with our flak helmets on. We're all mm-hmm. the same man. And so he, they did a ton of missions. And at the time you were, you were, uh, signed on to do 20 missions and then you could rotate out later in the war. Cause there's so many of these B-24s, especially got shot down. They, they upped it to 25 and then the 30. And then you said the some guys 30. would fly one mission and then couldn't. Yeah, there do was, anymore there because were these were so of, scary and dangerous. Yeah, there, yeah, there, there was one guy who was a navigator. They said they would have to tie him up and throw him in the plane, and once it, the wheels were up, he was fine. But he was kicking and screaming to get started. Yeah, and they did yeah. that everything. That guy did his twenty five missions, and so I mean, it, 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 this was terrifying. Um, and so there was one mission that Stewart was on, which really was the uh, the pinnacle, terrible moment, and it was his eighteenth mission. And they were over Germany again, and they got hit by flak so bad that it ripped the bottom of the aircraft out. They lost two motor, they t- lost two of the four engines on this thing. But Jimmy Stewart and the co-pilot, they're harnessed in, of course, but their legs are hanging over Germany. They could look straight down and see Germany. And this was absolutely terrifying. On one of Jimmy Stewart's missions, his bomber group lost 13 planes and 130 crewmen. And these were all people that they ate with, they slept with, they went to church with, and they, you know, mm-hmm. you know, spent all their time with. And so after that 18th mission, he was grounded um, for a while because it was, it had taken his toll, but he eventually finished his 20, uh, 20 mission commitment. And he took all this back to Hollywood. Like a lot, like everybody else did. Here, here you can see a photo of Jimmy Stewart in under two years. And those aren't Hollywood photos. Those are Air Force photos. You see the difference in this man in under two years after 20 of the stress. Visits. Yeah. And it's so remarkable. Yeah. He looks like he's aged 15 years. And I think this is why, you know, he took a bit of a break when he came back and wanted to make sure he did the right thing. And Jim, Jimmy Stewart said too, like when he first got back, his phone wasn't ringing off the hook. And Capra goes to Jimmy and says, look, I'm going to do this. I think there was a funny story where he tried to pitch him and said he completely bumbled the pitch. He's like, uh, it's an angel in heaven. And, um, uh, yeah, guys contemplating suicide maybe. And, um, uh, and he's got a small town and he's like, God, oh, that sounds terrible. Doesn't it? Jimmy said, listen, if you're asking me if I want to do a movie about a guy who's contemplating ending his life, but has a guardian angel, I'm your guy. I'm your guy. Mother necessity. We talk about this a lot as a filmmaker. You look back to say, how did they do it at this time? Silent films had moved to audio, but they would still record the movie without audio and then do the dialogue later. So people would have to loop their lines, right? right? They would have to, I mean, that was the norm on everything. That was the norm at this time. Frank Capra, he didn't like that. He liked to record sound with picture. 
felt probably is. I want to have to recapture a performance later. By the way, super tough to do as an actor. A lot of actors don't like looping because you're on a dark sound, you know, in a sound booth with like this, right. trying to recreate your performance on the day. Yeah, well, it's how was very, I standing? Who was yeah, next to me? Where, where was my emotional level? It's a really hard thing to do. Um, and at the time, the current technology for snow was painted cornflakes. They looked great. They look great. Uh, only one problem. They're crunchy when you step on them and they make a lot of noise. So right. that wasn't going to work if you were going to record sound at the same time. So they revolutionized this stuff and they use a combination of chip dice, which is cool, makes sense, ivory soap. Ivory soap, ivory soap flakes. And fomite, which is essentially something that comes out of a fire extinguisher. Again, sometimes the best solution is use logic. Now, an Easter egg, uh, there's a scene near a bridge in this movie. If you look in the water, you can see some soap suds from, I think, the soap coming over. But I will say this. On Christmas Story, um, we went to Cleveland. We were told it's cold. It snows there. It was cold, but it frequently didn't snow when we wanted it to. We were a small-budget movie, didn't have effects. Visual effects weren't ready now. You can blanket snow visually. You couldn't do it. So what do you do? You look back to the greats and say, how did they do it? And you replicate that because it works. So what did we use? We really used a combination of ice. I, I remember it was this sort of ivory soap and fomite that at the time I kind of thought looked like shaving cream. They had called the local fire trucks to spray it. So, I mean, all his inventions here on It's a Wonderful Life are... Still in Carried use. through, still in use. What did we use uh, for uh, snow in the trucks in Bulgaria for a Christmas story? Christmas was that cr- fomite? Uh, they had revolu- I think it's been revolutionized a little now. I was told it's basically ground up diapers, <laughs> 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 like whatever materials used for diapers, but it's moist. I would argue though, it was good, but it's you know it it leaves a lot of footprints. I think there might have been something in what these guys were doing because even when you see him run around in the snow, it looks so good. Interestingly, on the effects, that pioneering out of logic and necessity got them an Oscar for technical achievement. You can't walk on cornflakes cornflakes anymore. Let's figure something out. You got to figure out another way to do it. And probably quite a bit of it on the fly. Someone had a couple ideas beforehand. Let's see if it works. Yeah, but it's kind of cool in the sense, right, that like he's – you have to solve the problem and the solution is Oscar worthy yeah. because you're just fixing a problem that's in front of you. Often how the best things come. And it's further remarkable that they did this in the summer. Right. This movie was not shot in the winter for winter release. It was shot in the summer to get finished and come out later that year. I think it was originally supposed to come out in the spring. It's interesting, too. You see Jimmy Stewart when he's on that fateful night um, running and he's sweating. You just assume because his life's falling apart and he's panicking and his neurons yeah, are that blowing makes up. Sense. But it was really 90 degrees. <laughs> 90 degrees. People are getting heat stroke on the set. Yep. And they're having to shut down for a couple days at a time because people are getting physically affected by the environment. And if you look, it's an active movie yep. in the sense that like the characters are always moving. They're running, they're pacing, they're walking. There's lots of extras. It's in yeah, there's- hot light sets. And this is also back in the time when we didn't have LED lights. Sure. Like big HMIs and yellow lights. I mean, the set temperatures were terrible. and You didn't have the ability to cool down the set. Hat trick. I love doing this with you because you you see a lot of stuff in movies that, that I don't see. And um, vice versa. But. Yeah, but you find really interesting, I think, things that would be invisible actually to most people. 
Um, you want to talk about one of them here? Yeah, I mean, going back to Frank Capra, maybe starting in silent movies, there's a lot of visual things, and there's a lot of craft to making visual things read when you have no words. And so, and this being part of the '40s, it, it, there's there, everyone's wearing hats in this movie. You never yeah. left your house without a hat. George Bailey doesn't leave his house without a hat until that fateful night when he's running around with Clarence. So, but it seemed to me there's these great little scenes here. Um, and they're just nice moments. To me, it's just really good filmmaking and it's got the tone and the feel and it keeps this movie going. So let's take a look at this thing. I kind a little of section we like stuff. to call hats. Oh, maybe I better go home. Where's my hat? Where's my hat? Oh, oh thank you, George. Which is mine. The metal one. Oh, thank you, George. Oh, boy, oh, boy. Mother of mine, I can see right through you, right to your back collar, but trying to get rid of me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, here's your hat. What's your hurry? And, of course, we have two hats in this scene, one using the wall to lift up his hat, and the other is pouring water out of his brim. It's a solid execution. And last but not least, the crowd pleaser, the classic hat smash. It started with Frank Capra being the gag man in silent movies. Right. And there's a lot of them, so it's fun stuff to look for as you watch the movie, just these small either visual things or hats or little moments that he never leave your house likes to do. And I keep putting in the bucket of he just keeps the movie entertaining. You know, it's never gets heavy, uh, never gets melodramatic, even though it's real stuff going on. He just finds a way to kind of bring a little bit of levity and some joy into these moments. Yeah. Capper said that there's no rules in filmmaking, only sins. And the cardinal sin is dullness. Yeah. That's and exactly so, right. And, he and is, so he's sprinkling these bits in. I he's think. a master of that. Yeah, with you know, true kind of life or death stakes for the town and for George himself. There's nothing better when the guy asks you for a tip and you just drop water into his <laughs> hand. That's right. Un-American activity. So you look at the 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 <laughs> sheer joy of this movie. It was potentially deemed and being debated as communist propaganda. Um, so let's push pause in that, and we're going to answer that. I think Frank Capra um, had already had some trouble with some censorship boards kind of going into this and had some criticism on his film. He was on the radar, so to speak. Yeah, as were a lot, but he was on the radar. So for Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Which, of course, great, is also Jimmy Smith. Jimmy right, which is Jimmy Stewart and Frank Capra, this sort of idealized version of a young politician exposing corruption and um, – Using down home sensibility and ethics to try to get his, his foot into Washington and every man in America. That's right. Goes to the, um, the problem. Sort of a beautiful story again on theme for him as an individual at the time. So we're going back now five years. Joe Kennedy, who was at the time the U.S. ambassador to the U.K., writes a letter to Bill Hayes. Yes. This is of the Kennedy family, of course. Right. Bobby and uh, Jack's dad. Yep. Who had some roots, I think, in bootlegging early and then now sort of gone a little more mainstream, writes a right. letter Once you get to, the money, you get the power. <laughs> Once you get the money, you get the power. I think that's true. So he sends a letter to Will Hayes, who's the president of the Motion Picture Producers and Distribution Group. This is Joseph Kennedy. This is Joseph Kennedy, who's currently the U.S. ambassador to the U.K., so he's worked his way up, right? He's himself in politics. He says, I have just seen Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I consider this one of the most disgraceful things I have ever seen done to our country to permit this film to be shown in foreign countries and to give people the impression that anything like this could happen in the United States Senate is to me, nothing short of criminal to me. That's right. So he's making a plea 
um, there was also a plea um, to the head of the studio who was Cohen at the time to not release the movie. This movie was a threat on that level. And Frank Capra himself said in an interview early before the movie came out, you let reviewers look at it. And there was a group of reviewers in Washington, D.C. And while the movie was getting favorable response from people, this group of critics and reviewers in D.C. destroyed the movie, hated it, said it was terrible, didn't support the movie in their writings. And he felt that it's because potentially it was sort of revealing maybe a threat to their business of politics. I guess we're saying this because I think there were some seeds that were sowing early with some of his work. Capra put a target on his back with a few influential people. I think that's right. And his movies about individuality maybe were somewhat of a threat to certain establishments. At least that's how they felt. That's how he saw it. So you come to this movie and this brings us back up to the FBI investigating it. So there's sort of communist propaganda, bit hysteria post-war. Yeah, it's, it's starting. It's our next foe is sort of internal communism. Right. Right. So it's our next foe. And f- this guy with a target on his back is deemed as potentially it's a wonderful life is said to be communist propaganda. Sympathetic towards. And Anne Rand, who had written some very large memos, was citing things in American culture that could be deemed this way, was one of the first to kind of put a target on this movie and bring it up. This had to go before committee hearings. This movie was reviewed. They kicked the tires of it. And ultimately, I I want to read this to you because I think it's interesting. Yes, please. It's accusation in its saving grace. This led to the FBI to investigate the film, culminating in its mention during the House Committee on Un-American Activities. The chapter was closed when the film was defended by writer Charles Moffat, who he himself was an ex-communist. <laughs> he was reformed and an expert witness. He said that while the banker was portrayed as a villain and the power of money was portrayed as potentially oppressive, it also showed that money can be used benevolently. It, I think, goes into the bucket of... There can be these narratives, maybe in America at times and maybe in all places, in communities, certainly in Hollywood, where there's either a certain type of storytelling that you want or that you don't want. And I think it's so odd to look at Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and It's a Wonderful Life and realize that they were subversive right. <laughs> to and- certain groups in America and potentially around the world. And you take this attack on It's a Wonderful Life then, and it ends up in the Vatican's top 15 films that show virtue. Nick, who doesn't love free TV? Literally no one. Yeah, especially around the holidays, right? Everyone loves TV yeah. around the holidays. Well, while you might know that Vizio has TVs with the highest picture quality, did you know that they have this free streaming service called Watch Free Plus? I did not. Yep, you just connect your TV, and it's right there with hundreds of free streaming channels. And it's like having cable, but it's free. Like free, free. It's free. Like free. And apparently they even have a channel that plays 24 straight hours of Christmas movies. I think a lot of people would like that. And you can get your Vizio TV at Walmart. Well, I'll have to get a Christmas sweater and some friends and we can do that. So you can get all this done from one TV that's Vizio. Everything old is new again. I think a lot of people could potentially overlook this movie or dismiss it, right? It's black and white. It's... 60, 80 odd years old and say, yeah. oh, that's that old timey movie. Don't be so quick to do so. No, there's parallels in this that are relevant today and have been relevant the entire time. But yeah, maybe even more relevant today, oddly, or at least as relevant for sure 
This is about a man evaluating his life and the value, where he's putting the value of a great life. And you hear a lot of conversations now about kids really struggling with mental health. Um, they're sort of addicted to the internet and to social media to either seeking the approval of others to kind of like what they do or feeling like they're missing out by seeing other people's lives that seem to be greater or cooler or more valuable than their own. Yeah. Or people are living a better life than their own, even though they're not. That's right. Stock of what they, their value and who they really are. And it's very easy and it's, it's very common now to, to look for value outside of what you have and what you do. And I can appreciate that that's challenging. It's all over televisions. We said it's on social media. This movie is a good reminder to take stock of what you do have, to be grateful for what you do have, and to realize that the contributions that you make that maybe aren't rewarded on the same value system in society that you see are actually incredibly well valued. It just touches on a lot of relevant themes that are going on today as well. Yeah. I mean, should, you know, be, be cautious of what you assign value to because, you know, you can literally talk yourself into a heart attack, but you can barely talk yourself out. Tale of the tape. So a lot of people know that uh, It's a Wonderful Life didn't do really well and didn't quite get on everyone's radar. But this movie did not make back its budget. No. Um, in the theaters when it came out and was determined to be a financial failure. It actually proved fatal to Liberty Films, who really risked all their inception as this independent film production company launched by Frank Capra. They put this movie on its back. Right. Um, and it wasn't able to realize its dream as being an independent studio and really kind of putting a bit of an end to Frank Capra's career as a result of this, as a result of many of the things we've talked about. I think him betting on this movie at being a failure, maybe him not aligning with the institutions politically and on a filmmaking level in Hollywood sort of hurt his luster and his star. Yeah, it's odd that his his biggest hit ended his career. But just like George Bailey's dreams, which he thought were <laughs> put packed away and he wouldn't have a wonderful life, this movie has an incredible ending because all of a sudden, 28 years later, because of public domain law and a clerical error, someone forgets to register, to re-register the copyright of the movie. You can put on your station for free. So what do they do? They put it on. Yep. And suddenly they run it and run it. It and builds run. an audience and it, people start coming to this movie. People start watching this movie over and over. It becomes a Hollywood staple. It's number one on most lists. So yep. when you still say, and this is the oldest really of the, kind of still relevant Christmas movies that are talked about. It's still number one. It's sort of the, undis I call it the, un the undisputed heavyweight champ because it sits there and you're reminded why. It's also a very homaged movie. Oh, yeah. Um, in Elf, Buddy the Elf stops on the bridge um, and contemplates suicide for a moment in that movie and a total shout out to Jimmy Stewart on the bridge. In Christmas Vacation, Jimmy Chase cuts, cuts the banister, which is the reminder of the house falling apart, the same banister knob. Frank Capra said it was his favorite movie of his career. Right. Said it was the movie that he had waited his entire life to make. Um, it in many ways ruins his career. Um, he went on to direct a couple of other features, nothing very well known, some documentary 
films, some documentary shorts, and some television. Oh, television movies. But this, I think, brought such joy to him to see the, in some ways, the resurrection of this movie coming and reaching so many people. Um, yep. I'll, I'll leave you with one, um, one thought that I think really sums up Capra in this movie and this whole journey. And it was what he said at the, uh, AFI awards. He got a lifetime achievement award and he said, don't follow trends, start trends. Don't compromise. Believe in yourself because only the valiant can create. Only the daring should make films. And only the morally courageous are worthy of speaking to their fellow man for two hours in the dark. A bridge too far. And so at this point, George has never traveled. He never went to college. He never made his name in the world. And he's suddenly $8,000 in debt. Facing potential criminal charges, no doubt the closing of this savings and loan, this will result in, but he's just kind of at wit's end and he's sort of losing it and he pops into the bar and he glances at a life insurance policy. Second, yeah, sticking out of his pocket. Yeah. And we kind of get the assumption that maybe he's feeling that his life is worth more dead. Killing yourself for money, eight thousand dollars. Yeah, now think, just things like that. Now, how do you know that? I told you I'm your guardian angel. I know everything about you. Well, you look about like the kind of an angel I'd get. Sort of a fallen angel, aren't you? What happened to your wings? I haven't won my wings yet. That's why I'm an angel second class. I don't know whether I like it very much being seen around with an angel without any wings. Oh, I've got to earn them. And you'll help me, won't you? Sure, sure. How? By letting me help you. It's great. Yeah, it's um, it's pretty great. And his mentor, who is very on topic, he's very on task. He, <laughs> he mentions he needs to get his wings five or six well, times. Well, I like that. You know, it's not just this sort of sweet old man with noble intentions that's going to bestow some sage words of advice he's got something that he wants absolutely you know he's got to get this done selfishly for him so he's all about giving him some knowledge but he has a selfish interest and it's kind of cool that he makes him save him right smart (laughs) he's not saving he doesn't pull him out of the water and say wait a minute and break it down no it's just very cool ways again of filmmaking and storytelling absolutely and this this leads into what Capper said was the sort of resounding reason, part of the story that made him want to do this. So he told right. a story that there were three scripts written for this movie originally, and none of the three worked for him. They were two George Baileys. Yeah, and a couple. There was a good George Bailey and a bad George Bailey. They took this short story and that's what they had done with it. And then they were supposed to, the George Baileys were going to get into a fist fight on the bridge here at this moment. And then the good George Bailey was going to knock the bad George Bailey out and only the good George Bailey was left. Um, and this was the scripts for It's a Wonderful Life. 
what Capra said was none of them mattered to him. It wasn't his epiphany. And what he said at the time was you're missing the whole movie. The movie is a man who gets the opportunity to see what his life would be like if he wasn't born. What if I was never born? He gets to see what his life was like if he was never born. And it's, it's not good. No, everything's gone off the rails and it's also now called Potterville. It's not Bedford Falls anymore. The town is now named Potterville. So Potter got his way, took over. And I mean, it's like becomes a totally different movie for a minute because now it's full of strip bars, casinos, avarice and vices. And it's interesting. It's like all these sort of things. I think symbolic it's in some way of, you know, maybe what would be in the bucket of sin. Right. It's kind of gambling vices, go-go dancers, boozing, well, you know, weekly fights, diamond dance. Yeah. They're rounded up is. people in paddy wagons. The whole world is filled with everyone running around trying to get, trying to get laid, trying to get drunk. It turns into Vegas. Yeah. And this is a total shock to George. It's dawning on him. This is worse and worse and worse. <laughs> and it's like, how can this whole world change from just him not being born? It leads us to the end of conflict. I want to live again. Please, God, let me live again. Hey, George! George! You all right? Hey, what's the matter? Now get out of here, Bert, or I'll hit you again. Get out of here. What the Sam Hill are you yelling for, George? You... George. Bert, do you know me? Know you? Huh. You kidding? I've been looking all over town trying to find you. I saw your car piled into that tree down there, and I thought maybe you... Hey, your mouth's bleeding. Are you sure you're all right? What you... <laughs> My mouth's bleeding, Bert! My mouth's bleeding! Zuzu's pedals! Zuzu... There they are! Bert! What do you know about that? Merry Christmas! Well, Merry Christmas! Merry... And away we go. He returns to the bridge where moments earlier he thought he wanted to end it all yep. and prays and pleads to he have his life back. He begs reinstatement and he gets it. And everything goes back to, back to the way it was. And it's interesting where only his perspective has changed. That's exactly right. The world has not changed. His car is still run into a tree. He's $8,000 in debt. Still has too many kids. That's right. But his perspective has changed. Right. And, and, and he sees, you know, maybe, maybe he did have a wonderful life. Yeah, I think that's it's certainly he wanted to get back to that life. And it's it is a really important point because it's a small thing and it's also something I think that maybe one of the reasons this movie resonates is it's something we can all do. Right? It's not the end of a movie where someone wins the lottery and money solves problems. Well, I don't know that that'll happen to me or right. other things that happen. It's literally a change in perspective. Ring the bell. He is full of life. Full, full of, of life. He's back. Full of joy. Yeah, George Bailey is back. Let's see how this all wraps up. Quiet, everybody. Quiet, quiet. Now get this. It's from London. Oh. 
Mr. Gower cabled you need cash. Stop. My office instructed to advance you up to $25,000. Stop. Oh. Hee-haw and Merry Christmas, Sam Wainwright. Oh. That's a Christmas present from a very dear friend of mine. That's right. That's right. It's the mother of all endings. It's the ending of all endings. It's the A-bomb of all endings. <laughs> it's the A-bomb of all endings of movies. It's so true. And who is it that turns out? For him to save him in his time of need, all the people that he saved and helped and gave kind gestures to along the way. And the nice thing, too, is I don't think we saw this coming. It's just another testament to Capra and to storytelling. I mean, this ending is referenced in studios from development people as, you know, reaching a certain feeling. And you've spent a lot of time seeing George not realize his hopes, dreams, goals and wishes and so for him to get this in the end and for his family to get this feels so good and yes it was a wonderful life it was a very very wonderful life wow. well merry christmas to you my friend it was a good one life. it's a wonderful life merry christmas all right. to all and to all a good night thanks for tuning in thank you 